Well, good morning and uh, welcome to Renewal Church, a church where we seek to ignite a gospel spreading movement through multiple local congregations in the greater Philadelphia area and around the world so that individuals, communities, and cultures are renewed in Christ. If we haven't yet met before, my name is Pastor Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here at stat on staff at Renewal. And I'm really grateful to be part of this community and excited to be with you this morning and open up God's Word together. Uh, just a quick note that you'll notice things are a little bit different this morning. We continue to try different approaches and formats uh, to try to figure out the best way that works best for us to do these online services. Uh, nothing is easy in church life right now. We miss being physically present with each other. Uh, but this I know, our Redeemer lives, He reigns, He's making all things new. So we will continue to worship Him in spirit and in truth. We'll continue to be wise and continue uh, to love one another through this difficult season. So uh, just stick with us as we continue to try and to adjust to new realities each week and try different formats. Uh, but thank you for joining us this morning. And this morning we're continuing our series in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, for those of you who are joining us for the first time, uh, welcome. We're glad that you're here with us. We hope to be able uh, to meet you in person one day soon. Um, but we've been working through the book of Mark uh, in the New Testament uh, since uh, the beginning of January together. And I invite you all, uh, whether this is your first time or you've been with us many other times, to jump in with us this morning uh, along with this story. Uh, so in our text this morning that Pastor Dan just read, uh, Jesus once again prophesies a painful uh, truth about his future. And once again, his followers are slow to understand the implications of what he is saying. Uh, this leads to one of Jesus' most convicting teachings uh, from him about leadership and about power in his kingdom. He'll ask his followers, both ancient, uh, current, and future, uh, his followers to follow him in the way of the cross. So before we jump into this convicting text this morning, I want to pray for us and ask for help uh, from God. So would you pray with me? Uh, dear God, thank you uh, for this morning that we can come to worship you in spirit and truth. Lord, we pray that as we open up uh, your word together, uh, that you would illuminate these words of scripture for us uh, so that we can understand them and apply them to our lives. Thank you uh, for this time that we have together. Lead us and guide us into all truth. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So I'm fairly new around here at Renewal, and many of you are uh, still getting to know me. Um, but one thing that I haven't mentioned yet about myself is that I was really into theater uh, my senior year in high school and all throughout college. I was a, a theater kid. I played all kinds of different roles and, and different plays, um, but I always seemed to be cast as either the, the bad guy or the crazy guy. So I'm not sure exactly what that means about me or what that says about me, but it is what it is. I was the bad guy and the crazy guy. Uh, and one of the things that you first learn about in uh, theater when you're studying plays or in class, I also took some uh, theater classes in college, is the, the classic structure of a play is typically set in a three-act play. Uh, and this is true in theater. This is true in oftentimes many books or stories. There are three acts to the narrative. 
The first act sets the stage. It introduces the characters, both good and bad. It establishes the relationships between the characters. Um, it sets the stage for what's yet to come. It shows the setting and the relationship. And then we move on to the second act. Uh, the second act shows the, the rising action in the story. There's a continued increase in conflict as the stakes get raised higher and higher. And that oftentimes leads to a foreshadowing of what's to come in the third and final act. And in that third and final act, we have the climax of the story. It's the, the crisis point that comes to a head and there is finally a usually dramatic resolution to the whole story. Well, many scholars have observed that the book of Mark, the book that we've been studying these past few months, is set up in this three-act play structure. The first act was Jesus in Galilee gathering his disciples and teaching about the kingdom of God, uh, healing people, and it also introduced to us the uh, scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the, the chief priests. These were the the main opponents of Jesus, the main opponents to him and his message. Uh, the second act in the book of Mark, the act that we're actually in right now, is that rising action. It's the, the middle chapters in the book of Mark, roughly the end of chapter 8 uh, through chapter 10. Um, and that's that second act. And in this act, Jesus sets his eyes towards Jerusalem. It's a journey. Uh, and he starts moving himself and his disciples closer and closer to the city. And as they journey along, he foreshadows three different times. He foreshadows what will happen to him once they finally get to Jerusalem. Well, this morning, as we are approaching the end of the second act in the book of Mark, in this three-act play, our passage is undoubtedly the high point in the rising action of the story of Mark. In Mark 10, 32 through 45, we have Jesus predicting his death and resurrection for the third and final time. We have an immature request from some of his followers, and finally we have Jesus' response uh, to their request and also a clarification about his purpose and mission. So that's how we're going to continue our time together this morning as we think about what it means to follow Jesus in the way of the cross. So we'll first look at Jesus as he predicts his death and resurrection for a third time. Second, the request of the sons of thunder. And finally, the response to that request and the clarification of his mission. So look with me again at chapter 10. Uh, we'll start by reading again because it's worth reading again. Uh, verses 32 through 34 about Jesus predicting his death and resurrection for the third time. So follow along with me. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this first point this morning, but Jesus and this larger group of followers and certainly his 12 disciples are on a journey from the north 
to the south. They're on a journey from rural to urban. They're on a journey from low elevation to high elevation. They are on the road to Jerusalem. Their arrival will be in time for the Passover festival. Uh, this is when the Jewish people uh, celebrated you know, the, the plague of the firstborn that led to the freedom from Egypt where Moses led his people out of Egypt and that led into the Exodus. And this is one of the, the holiest seasons for the people of Israel. And so there would have been many other pilgrims on the road to Jerusalem to go celebrate the Passover festival. And as the passage says that Jesus was leading the way. He was walking out ahead of everyone. And as I said before, Jesus had already taught that he was going to Jerusalem to, to suffer and die and be raised again. He was not trudging along behind. He wasn't scared about what was ahead of him. Rather, he boldly walked out in front of the crowd, leading them towards the city. And Jesus decides that he's going to reiterate for the third and final time what's going to happen to him once he finally gets to Jerusalem. The description of what the Gentile Roman authorities will do to Jesus shows that the, the final stage of this passion story will be taken out of Jewish hands. Uh, Jesus is stating the historical reality that at this point in our story hasn't yet come to pass, but Jesus, in a humiliating irony as the Jewish Messiah, while condemned and betrayed by his own people, will in fact meet his death by the hands of the Gentiles. And I want to draw attention to those four words that Jesus described, used to describe what the Gentile authorities would do to him once he got to Jerusalem. He says they will mock him, they will spit on him, they will flog him, and they will kill him. Uh, there's a famous chapter in the Old Testament that talks about the suffering servant Messiah who would come. Uh, this chapter is Isaiah chapter 53. And back in Isaiah chapter 53, uh, from verses 3 through 9, it says these exact things would happen to the Messiah, that he would be mocked upon, that he would be spit upon. This is in uh, verse 3 of Isaiah 53. Uh, he'll be flogged in verse 5, and finally he'll be killed, put to death in verses 8 to 9. So Jesus here is the, the final realization of what way back in Isaiah chapter 53 predicted would happen. This suffering and death has always been in the works for the Messiah. This wasn't something new and novel, but something very old and something very weighty. His suffering and death is not a setback in the mission of Jesus. It is not some victory for his opponents. No, it's exactly why he came in the first place. And Jesus jumps out ahead of us. He's charging towards Jerusalem and the cross. And again and again, he invites us to pick up our cross and to follow him in the way of the cross. He invites us to join him in his mission, a mission and purpose that was set out long before the foundation of the earth. And the three times in the second act of the play of Mark, that Jesus predicts that this would happen to him. And in all three of those times, it is immediately followed by his disciples just sort of messing things up. They fail to understand what it is that Jesus is teaching to them about himself and about his mission. And that's what we're going to turn to next, uh, another time where his disciples mess up. Uh, the sons of thunder, that's James and John, mess up 
by making an immature request of Jesus. This is in uh, verses 35 uh, through 37. So uh, James and John were two of Jesus' closest disciples. Uh, it could be argued that John was maybe his closest friend and disciple. These brothers who had been walking along uh, beside Jesus for a while now, these men who had ate with him and slept with him and watched him perform miracles and heard all of his teachings and many, many other things that they saw from Jesus, and yet they still did not understand who he was. First, they asked Jesus to do for them whatever they ask. They want a, a blank check of a blessing from Jesus. That's kind of an audacious ask if you think about it. I can't imagine just going up to somebody and saying, Hey, will you do whatever I ask you to do for me? Will you do that? Anything I ask, will you do that? That's basically what James and John said to Jesus. And Jesus rightly asked them to be a little bit more specific. What do you want me to do for you? Uh, James and John, the sons of thunder, see this as a good opportunity, a good time to make a power play. Uh, they, along with Peter, have kind of been the inner circle of Jesus, uh, James, John, and Peter. And so this inner circle, there's obviously some dynamics going on there. So James and John make a, plate, a blatant power grab and try to push Peter and the others down below them. They ask, let us sit on your right hand and on your left hand in your glory. Apparently, even after what Jesus has just said for a third time about his going to Jerusalem to die, James and John think that they are going to Jerusalem to set up a uh, political revolution, a physical bringing the Messiah to power. They wanted Jesus, when he was enthroned in his glory, in political power, after kicking out the Romans, he wanted, them to, he wanted for them to be their, his right-hand man and his left-hand man. They wanted all the fame, they wanted all the glory and the power and the honor. We are all so prone to look out for number one. We're so prone to look out for number one, aren't we? To make these kinds of self-seeking power grabs. Did you know that uh, C.S. Lewis, you know, the famous writer of Screwtape Letters and Mere Christianity and the Chronicles of Narnia, well, C.S. Lewis also uh, wrote poetry. Um, I don't know if it was especially good poetry, but I like uh, one from him that he calls As the Ruin Falls. The first stanza makes that same point that we are all self-seeking when it comes down to it. We are too often out for ourselves. C.S. Lewis writes, All this is flashy rhetoric about loving you. I never had a selfless thought since I was born. I am a mercenary and self-seeking through and through. I want God, you, all friends, merely to serve my turn. In As the Ruin Falls by Lewis comes to the conclusion, the, the final thought is that only through heartache and pain and failure and ruin and even death is Lewis able to get outside himself enough to truly care for God and others. His final line in the poem sees all the sin and failure and pain in his life as a kind of blessing from God that has allowed him to see himself clearly for the first time 
as a person in need of saving. I think this is part of what's going on in James and John's story. Uh, It's part of Peter's story as well. It's part of the disciples' story, all of them. It's part of your story and part of my story. Our failures and our sins, our self-seeking attempts at power grabs, if we can see them for what they really are, if we can see them for the sin that they are, it can bring us to repentance and humble reliance on Jesus. The first function of the law of God is to show us our weakness and lead us to ask for help. However, if we let that sin fester, if we don't recognize it for what it is, if we don't deal with it, in other words, if we don't put our faith in Jesus to save us from our sin, then our hearts will only grow harder and harder and smaller and smaller. There will be nothing left of you in the end, nothing but judgment and wrath. In these verses, it's clear that James and John, in that dark moment, are quick to claim the benefits of the kingdom of God, but slow to hear about the costs in participating in it. That sounds familiar, right? We, we want all the benefits. We want all the good things, but we don't want the costs. We don't want the hard work that it will take to get there. We'll always take the good while trying to avoid the difficult cost needed to secure that good thing. But Jesus has something very different in mind when he talks about his kingdom. His response reveals what leadership and power really looks like in his kingdom. And he goes on to also clarify his purpose at the end of this passage. So this is my third point this morning. It's Jesus' response and a clarification of his mission found in verses 38 through 45. So how does Jesus respond to this immature request from James and John? Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. Jesus uses then two metaphors to uh, describe what's going to happen to him and them. He talks about a cup that they'll drink and a baptism that they'll have. And by this, he means that they're going to experience suffering and death as well. Uh, The disciples, all of them, are going to experience this kind of suffering and death. But those who will sit on on his right hand and on his left hand, it's not for him to grant because there's already some that have been chosen for this task. So one way to interpret that, and the way that I favor, is that in verse 40, when Jesus says, it's not mine to grant who will be on my right and on my left, but it is for those who have been prepared in advance, Jesus is making an allusion to the two thieves, or as Mark calls them, the rebels in Mark chapter 15, who will be crucified along with Jesus on his left and on his right in Jerusalem. So James and John ask for power, And Jesus says, if you follow me, you will need to die. You will need to follow me in the way of the cross. But dying on my left hand and on my right is reserved for somebody else, the rebels, one of whom will be with me in paradise. James and John will get a cup and will get baptism, but they won't get to be crucified next to Jesus once they get to Jerusalem. And of course, as the other disciples are sort of listening into this request from James and John, and they're hearing him make this kind of power grab from Jesus, 
The text doesn't say this, but you can certainly kind of imagine Jesus just shaking his head in frustration as those disciples are listening in, and then they become upset and frustrated with James and John, probably because they didn't think of it first. So Jesus, seeing all of this, launches into one of his greatest teachings about power and authority and leadership in his kingdom. It's worth reading again from verses 42 through 44. Jesus says, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be the servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. So Jesus says, serve rather than be served. That's loving leadership. Jesus says that the Gentile authorities lorded over their people. They, the world, manipulates, controls, and uses violence and power to rule over people. Jesus conveys that the oppressive and uncontrolled exploitation of power, the flaunting of uh, authority that is so prevalent in our world, is the opposite of what he wants. It's the opposite of faithful, humble leadership. For Jesus, leadership is always ultimately categorized as service. Power and service are going to be different in the kingdom that Jesus is bringing into existence. The the breaking in of the kingdom of God means that Christian leaders are going to be the kind of people who seek to love and serve other people. It's not uh, going to be about being above other people. The breaking in of the kingdom means that Christian leaders are going to be servants along with the congregation, not sitting above them, not being served, but serving. If you hope to one day be in uh, church leadership or any kind of kingdom leadership, a vital question is, how are you serving and loving those around you right now? It's not about how gifted you are, how talented you are, but how willing you are to lay down your life for those around you. Jesus concludes the teaching on servant leadership by making clear the nature of his mission and purpose here on earth. And it's very much related to what he just said about servant leadership. He says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The growing question, if you're reading Mark, if you're reading Mark for the first time, and you're seeing all these predictions about Jesus going to Jerusalem to die, you have to begin to wonder, why must this Jesus who we've come to love die? And here Jesus makes it clear. He has to die in order to be a ransom for many. A ransom, at least in the way that this word ransom is used in the New Testament here, is a payment of financial debt to secure the release of an indentured servant or slave. It's a a delivery of a payment that is due in order to set a person free. So Jesus' death was a payment of debt for many slaves to find freedom in him. This is the very purpose for which he came. This is why Jesus must die. The death of Jesus on, on behalf of many is a sacrifice done in obedience to the will of God, uh, his Father, 
It's the full expression of the love of God and a full satisfaction of the justice of God. It's because of that death that we can find freedom from sin and death and Satan. So Jesus, in response to James and John's question about wanting power when he sets up his kingdom, points these men to a life of service and self-sacrifice and laying down their lives for their brothers and sisters. And not only that, Jesus would show them the way. He wouldn't just talk the talk, but he would also walk the walk all the way to Calvary. Let me conclude with this thought. Throughout the last 2,000 years of history, Christianity has been at its most potent and its most powerful when individual Christians and communities of Christians were willing to lay down their lives for others. It was the earliest Christians, many of whom were slaves and indentured servants themselves, who were most likely to serve and care for the sick and the poor during the two great plagues uh, in the Roman Empire that hit in the second and third centuries. There are records of pagan leaders completely blown away by the loving compassion of those Christians, those early Christians who responded to the plague. They care for their own and they care for ours as well, exclaimed the Emperor Julian. The historian and sociologist Rodney Stark has shown how cities with a strong Christian presence in the second and third centuries had half of the death rate of those who did not have a strong Christian community. Half. You were more likely, in other words, to live if you lived in a city where there was a strong Christian presence in the Roman Empire. Another example from history of Christians who nonviolently laid down their lives is one that we don't often talk about. Uh, between 1877 and 1950, more than 4,400 black men, women, and children were hanged burned alive, shot, drowned, beaten to death by white mobs. The theologian James Cone connected these lynchings uh, to the cross of Jesus and pointed out all their similarities. He has shown how the black church in America has always found hope and perseverance by looking towards the death and resurrection of Jesus on the cross. Sadly, it was often the, the white church and the so-called white Christians that propagated this terrorism towards black brothers and sisters in Christ. There must be continued confrontation of this kind of sin and the legacy of white supremacy in America. I promise you, we as a church are not done talking about this. We're not done trying to figure out ways in which we as a church can be part of fighting racism uh, in our own country, in our neighborhoods, in our community, and in our own hearts. But it was the, the black church and black Christians, like those early Christians, that ran towards the plague that have modeled for us faithfully following Jesus in the way of the cross. We will never follow Jesus perfectly. Nobody has. We're all sinners. Our hearts are deceitfully wicked and we all need to be rescued. God knew that, that, that we couldn't save ourselves. So he sent his only begotten son, Jesus, God in flesh, to live the perfect sinless life that we couldn't live. He lived that life that we could not live. He showed us how to love one another, how to serve others. And he taught that in his kingdom, the high would be made low and the low would be made high. 
Uh, the poor would be made rich and the weak would be strong. He taught that the last would be first and the first would be last. He made his way along the twisty road into Jerusalem and there he was crucified by Roman soldiers. He suffered and died in our place, but then after three days he rose victorious over death and the grave and he ascended into heaven to his Father. Anyone who has faith in Jesus that believes he really is the Son of God who died and rose again, if you have faith in him, then you are empowered by the Spirit of God and you are made right with God. He is your ransom. He paid your debt and made you free and you are now adopted into his family. He takes your sin and you receive his righteousness. It is then and, and only then after you've had this change in your life because of what Christ has done for you, that you will truly be able to follow Jesus all the way to the cross. Once you experience this freedom in Christ, the Spirit begins to do a work in you, enabling you to love one another and pick up your cross and follow Him daily. He empowers you to be a servant of everyone. I challenge you, brothers and sisters at Renewal, Follow the way of so many faithful Christians who have gone before us. Follow Jesus, being willing to lay down your life for your brothers and sisters. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, would you pray with me? Oh Lord, thank you for turning your eyes towards Jerusalem and being willing to go all the way to the cross in order to be a ransom for many. You didn't run the other way, you didn't drag your feet, but instead showed us the way to live and revealed your mission to us. Oh God, help us to love one another, help us to serve one another, help us to lay down our lives for one another. I ask that you would help us to do this both amongst ourselves as Christians in the community of faith here at Renewal, but also to those who are outside of the community of faith as well. May we never turn our back on our neighbor or our neighborhoods. We want to join you in your mission and follow you in the way of the cross. God, we, want, we don't want this just to be lip service. We, we want to both talk the talk and walk the walk. So lead us and give us your wisdom in all of these things. Lord Jesus, thank you for dying in our place and living the life that we could not live and dying in sacrifice that we couldn't provide for ourselves. We worship you and bless your name, the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, you who deserve all praise and glory now and forever. Amen.